Joel chapter number 2 in our Bibles. Joel chapter 2, we'll read some verses and pray together. And I truly hope we'll be helped tonight from the Word of God. Verse 1 says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall there be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Well, this sounds ominous. This is a a judgment that's been pronounced. The day of the Lord, as we'll discuss in a moment, is a phrase in the Bible you see a lot. But it's very specific, and it sounds, it sounds ominous. What does God want His people to do about it? Because they did do something about it. But what did He want them to do about it? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your Word, and I pray that as we hear it, it will change our thoughts and our hearts, Lord. And it will, Father, change our direction in some cases, but certainly it will affect all of us in this room in the way that this prophecy of Joel is meant to. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to look again at this chapter, and this time I want you to skip down to two verses. And in particular, I want you to notice a very important statement in the second of the two verses. Notice verse 12, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend and rend your heart, and not... Your garments, and turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repented him of the evil. Now, the statement I want you to notice in particular here is what God says at the beginning of verse 13. When he says, Rend, tear your heart, and not your garments. In other words, as God looks down upon his people and his nation, he notices one of the very familiar ancient symbols of Jewish culture. They were just told about the coming day of the Lord. They were just told about judgment, and it would be be awful. And so they, in response to that, they did this practice that that they were fond of, and it's namely the practice of demonstrating their grief, their great emotion or sorrow, by taking their hands and literally ripping or rending their own garments. That is, the mantle or the overshirt of the upper body, they would rip it as a sign of sorrow, grief. And this practice goes as far back as the days of Job, because we know that Job did it. The first time it's recorded in the Bible, it, in, it was Reuben, the book of Genesis. And then right after, that was his father, Jacob, who, when he got the news, was told that his son Joseph was killed by wild beasts, and the brothers gave him the coat of many colors that had blood all over it to prove that he was, he was killed. The Bible says that Jacob rent his clothes. His son was gone forever out of pure grief. It was spontaneous. It was just something that he did. And this is the patriarch whose name was changed to Israel. So it's no surprise that this reaction, this ritual, would become a tradition, a symbolic gesture of mourning and grief. 
Job was a contemporary of Isaac, Jacob's father. He rent his clothes. It may be that, that Isaac and Jacob got it from Job. We don't know that. When he rent his mantle, when Job heard about his sons dying in the, in the winds and the storms. It also says that Job shaved his head in his mourning. That's a practice that didn't catch on as much in Israel. In fact, when Jacob rent his mantle, it goes on to say that he, he put on sackcloth on his loins. He literally wore burlap of goat's hair on his legs, goat's hair shorts, if you will, to make himself miserable. I'm glad that's not a tradition we have to do. It's a lot easier today to mourn because you just sit on the couch and eat a pint of ice cream and, and get sad. But that brings us back to Joel because it is God himself. Think about this. God brings up this, this practice. He brings up this tradition of tearing your clothes. Now, Joel, as you all know, is a book of, of short poems. Well, not all of you know, but I'm sure most of you do. That speaks about, again, the day of the Lord. And it does so both as the past day of the Lord and a future day of the Lord. And it reminds the people of God of this plague of locusts back in Egypt. God sent a plague of locusts on Egypt for judgment. And so now Joel is telling the leaders of Israel, look, the very same God is sending the the locusts to you. Because of your sin and your rebellion, your depravity. And through this judgment, he's calling on his people to repent. And the people want the locusts gone. They don't like the sound of this. They want their safety. They want their prosperity restored. So you know what they do? They do immediately, they do the quickest and easiest thing possible. They rip their clothes. They rend their clothes. Now, folks, obviously there's going to be some shock and therefore some confusion and disappointment. When after they do all of this, and no doubt associated with wailing and weeping, that when God notices it from heaven, he commands them to stop it. God tells them to stop doing this, their single greatest, most familiar act of religious piety. Stop rending your garments, God says. Now imagine God speaking to the Pope and telling him to stop doing the sign of the cross. Or telling Hillsong to stop raising their hands when they sing. Imagine God telling Hindus to stop plugging their index finger into their thumb as a means of keeping the energy flowing, or telling a Buddhist to stop bowing, or a Muslim to stop kneeling seven times a day. Imagine if you were a televangelist and you were told to stop smiling all the time. Imagine that. None of that equals the severity of what God is saying to these Jews. God tells his people to stop rending their garments, something they had done for centuries that their, their greatest patriarch did. And he says, stop doing that, and I want you to rend your hearts instead. Don't rend your garments, rend your heart. The reason for this command is a message of tremendous importance to us tonight. Someone asked me about the title, if I would have had a title, and I thought about it for a moment. And I decided on two words, tear here. You know, you get a little package or an envelope and bag of something from the store, and sometimes... 
you have these instructions on it this, with an arrow. It says tear here. And sometimes there's even a little dotted line, I guess, you know, to help us know where here is. And as far as I'm concerned, tear here has always, in America, at least been a cruel joke. That little soy sauce packet says tear here, as if you're not going to get it all over yourself if you obey tear here, or the flavor ice pops, or, or those box of Kleenex, you know, mustard packet, whatever it is. It might as well say rip everywhere, because that's how it's going to turn out, as we all know. But for the people of our text who are now tearing their mantles and their overshirts and who knows what else, it was God who pointed to their heart and said, tear here. If you really want, because he says, as you're going to see in a moment, he, he says, I'm full of compassion and, and loving kindness and mercy, and he is. He says, tear here, rend your heart, not your garments. We mentioned that there's a future day of the Lord that Job addresses, Joel. And as most of you know, it is, this is a sober, sober prophecy because it includes the coming tribulation and also the days that precede that great tribulation. So that the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 quotes verse 28 of our text. And when he does, he says that it, its fulfillment began on the day of Pentecost. This is that. Peter said, that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So that obviously, speaking of the last days in which we're living, this is a prophecy that has meaning and application for all of us here tonight. And this is especially true with regards to tonight's text in my own heart. And the reason why that is, beloved, is that it gives us eternal counsel that is based on eternal principles. God is showing us something about us. When he says, rend your heart and not your garments, he's not only teaching us about our own selves, which he is, he's also revealing truth about himself and what he really wants. Many of us believe that the single greatest, most important revelation God ever gave to man is the truth of what he demands in worship. Jesus said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, you go to the average worship service of any religion all over the world and see how much of the worship is all outward, how much of it is in spirit and in truth. Psalm 51, 16 says, thou desirest not sacrifice. What a thing to say to the Jews. What a thing for the Jews to hear. God, thou desirest not sacrifice. They've got to think, desirest not. That's all we do. We bring them all the time. Thou desirest not sacrifice. God himself said that. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That's what the rest of it says. Isaiah 57, 15 says that God dwells in the high and lofty place and with him also that is of a contrite and humble heart. God dwells up there. And also in here, if the heart is humble and contrite. And we could go on with these texts. All through the Bible, including tonight's text. Which really takes all of these great truths and states them in these metaphorical terms. Rend your heart, not your garments. 
It is essentially, beloved, God's way of teaching us certain truths. And I want to discuss some of those with you tonight. Three things about himself, three things about us as his people. For example, the first thing he's obviously telling us here, number one, is a, as a lesson and a message about sincerity. You see, follow this carefully. The problem with garment rending as practiced by the Jews, and you can fill in any other religious ritual, the problem with garment rending is that it's just like all other forms of religious ritual and ceremony in that it is basically very easy. It's easy. It's also self-serving. Any heathen who doesn't know God can take his hands and rip his shirt. Any hypocrite can make an outward show, a public display. Anybody can do something methodical or ceremonial while ever, ever having a heart towards God. A heart that is true or sincere towards God. And that's exactly what had happened to the nation of Israel. Jeremiah said to circumcise your heart. Same picture, same idea. So that with their lips... Okay, anybody can say things, repeat a mantra, say a prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Anybody can say that who has language. With their lips, they profess to know God. But their heart, their heart was far from him. We also live in a day, way more than they did even, of symbolism over substance, spiritually speaking. We live in a time when religious and spiritual show is of more value, even in Bible-believing churches like this, more value than spiritual character. If a famous preacher ever commits a moral failure or heresy, he just goes on TV and weeps really out loud and loud and makes a show, and so everybody sees it on TV, and all's fine. It's outward. If a new convert immediately wants spiritual maturity, they could get saved today, but they want to be spiritually mature, brought up on the stage, they can preach, sing, teach, whatever. He doesn't need years of prayer and doctrine and discipling. He just needs to know how to raise his hands and and speak in tongues. You understand that in many of these places, you don't need any maturing at all to speak in tongues. You can start speaking in tongues the moment you get saved. And it's a sign, therefore, an outward sign of, hey, look who I am. There's always a danger in elevating any outward manifestation of spirituality. Always. And the danger is that ritual itself, that thing, whatever it is, and you may have yours, is considered spiritual. But let's be reminded, beloved, that God never told the Jews to rend their garments. That was their thing. That was not commanded in the law. God never told a Christian to genuflect and make the sign of the cross. It's not in the Bible. God never asked people to be slain in the Spirit, commanded to speak in unknown tongues. It's a gift. God never commanded anyone to light a candle, to wear fancy outward robes, a collar, Put ashes on their forehead for all the people to see. To repeat any mantra. In fact, the Bible calls it vain repetition. 
to say things over and over and over again, whatever it might be. God never commanded us to go to a confessional. He never commanded football players to kneel in the end zone. He never told people to meet in large stadiums, big giant stadiums, more people the better, so that they could demonstrate their strength in a country. Nowhere in the Bible did God ask his people to put a cross on their car. I'm not saying there's anything wrong if you did it. But it's not something you're commanded to do. Or in their church. Or their tattooed bicep. God did not ask us to do any kind of these outward religious rituals. Nowhere for us as New Testament believers. And why? Well, in part, beloved, because anybody can do that. Anybody can. You, I wear a cross. Kanye wears a bigger cross than you do. So does Rihanna and Madonna and anybody else. I don't mind if you wear a cross. I'm just saying, it doesn't make you anything. The Pope wears a bigger hat than you do on Easter Sunday. Amen? <laughs> Witches light more candles than you do. Muslims repeat more prayers than you do. Vain repetitions. In Paul's day, the Jews had a custom of raising their hands to God when they prayed and when they sang at times, and it was a very sweet cultural thing. But I'll remind you of what Paul told them in 1 Timothy. He said, if you're going to do this, if you're going to raise your hands and make sure they're holy hands, don't raise them up unless they are holy hands. Otherwise, this is deceptive to you and to others. And he says to do it without wrath and doubting. Because, folks, what matters to God is not religious show. It is not what you do as a ritual that people see in public. What matters is what you did in your heart when nobody else was looking except for God. For example, did you pray this week? I don't know. I can't give you brownie points. When and where did you pray this week? Did you open up the Word of God and allow Him to speak to you? Did you thank God for His goodness and His blessings? Have you praised Him with melody in your hearts to the Lord? Did you privately confess your sins to the Lord? In other words, did you rend your heart? and not your garment. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. People mean well with religious ritual. Renting the garment is pleasing to God because of what it symbolizes. And I have to tell you something, folks. That can be true. Baptism is a symbol, and communion is a symbol. And God Himself instituted those. But do you realize how many billions of people in the world Hundreds and hundreds of millions. Look at how man has made those symbols into sacraments, adding them as necessary, adding them to Jesus' blood as necessary for salvation. And that's an abomination. It ruined the symbol. A wedding band is a beautiful symbol. But if there's betrayal, the symbol is a mockery. Same thing with the American flag. I'll put it this way. You tell me. If a major league baseball player takes God's name in vain all the time, he goes partying and clubbing while he's on the road, 
His players, fellow players, coaches, he's a known cheater and a liar. He's utterly filled with ego and pride. I have a question. What good does it do, that player, every time he gets up to bat, if he takes his crucifix and kisses it and does the sign of the cross? What does that act avail that man? Well, not only is it powerless. Wait, I did it wrong. You do the right side first. Right. I know. I know how it goes. This is actually literally it's the right because the right, you're separating the sheep from the goats. That's what it means. Whatever. What good does it do if he's, okay, so he takes God's name in vain, he's cheating on his wife, he's running around, he's clubbing, and, and he gets up to bat and he does this, and kisses his cross and does that. Not only is it powerless, that's an affront to God. If he believes in God, I can do what I want long as I do that. You say, Pastor, it's hard for me to believe. It's hard to believe that a religious ritual that's beloved and sacred would be deceptive or dangerous. Or an affront to God. Oh, really? All right. Picture this in your mind. Matthew chapter 26, there's a scene. I've pictured it in my mind many times. It breaks my heart and angers me. All assembled in the high priest's palace were the members of the Sanhedrin. And I mean, these are the big boys. These are the movers and the shakers. The religious ones. The Pharisees are there. The Sadducees are there. The scribes priests. It is the most religious body in the history of the world, maybe next to the Vatican. And you could tell they were. Because they're there and they're all wearing expensive robes. Caiaphas, the high priest, has a scepter. Can you imagine? Actually, I can because there are people that carry him today. So Caiaphas has a scepter. He has a throne And he has a miter, which is a big, giant hat, headdress. This entire place is filled with religious ritual. Except for one thing. Standing before the high council was the accused. No fancy or purple robe. No incense in his hand. No jewelry or tattoos of religious markings. It's just a man who claims to be God. And guess what happens when that man opens his mouth and speaks that truth that he is indeed God? Well, that guy Caiaphas, the guy with all the rituals, Caiaphas, the high priest himself, rises from his seat, his throne, in anger. And guess what he does? He rends his garment. He rips his garment. Just like Jacob did. He displays for all to see his righteousness, his righteous indignation, his loyalty to God. By what? By condemning God to die. The Son of God. Well, so much for the value of religious ritual. The one man, beloved, who was the farthest from God and the farthest from Christ himself in all of Israel was the one who was the most revered in that room and in that land and the most outwardly religious. So I'll say it again. Religious ritual is dangerous and it is deceptive, mainly because it is inherently insincere. All of it. Look, it's easily manifested. It is frequently hypocritical. 
is temporarily comfortable to you, and it is ultimately deceptive. And that's why God said, rend your hearts. I'm not interested in this. Rend your heart, not your garment. Which brings us to the second thing. Number one, sincerity. The second lesson is humility. Now, please hear this. Because the ancient ritual of garment rending was originally a part of being humbled. It was an act of humility and sorrow and grief that led to repentance. What have I done? The very idea of rending and ripping your your garment was an indication of unworthiness. It's what it was meant to do. It was an act of self-denial. But here's the problem. Anytime, folks, you have a public display of humility, then the display itself can very easily turn into an act of pride. It's like telling the world, just going around telling people how humble you are. I wrote a book called How to Be as Humble as I Am or whatever. You know, we laugh, but the French philosophers were famous for their six, ten-hour lectures on how to become as humble and meek as they were. Voltaire, all of them. Voltaire said to be is to do and discard. René Descartes said to do is to be. And Sinatra said, do be, do be, do. I don't know. They all have their own. <laughs> I think, therefore I am. I remember I was visiting once and there was a, on the outdoor mat said, I golf, therefore I am not here. I like that one. I should grab that one. But if you have some outward display that I'm just, you know, I'm a humble, it, it will probably become an outward display of pride. And what God is telling his people here in Judah is that Yes, he accepts the humble in heart. Yes, of course, always, always and always. He's nigh unto those that have a broken heart, and humility itself is always pleasing to God. But only when the humility is found in here first. Only when it's truly from your heart. Peter said, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He didn't say, humble yourselves with long prayers in public to be seen of men. Spirituality is not always a private matter, but humility always begins as a private matter. Always. It is looking at yourself through the eyes of God, not through the eyes of other people. Not through the eyes of man. It is embracing the truth of who you really are, what you really are, not as compared to your neighbor, but as compared to Christ himself. And that's why humility rends the heart. It does. It just it tears our heart. Humility points to one's need of God. And guess what, folks? We always need God. We need His Word. We need His help. We need His church. We need His grace. And to any degree that you're watching or that you're here tonight and you don't think you need all of that, God would say to you, rend your heart. Rend your heart, not your garment. Sincerity, humility. The third thing I want you to notice in the text is number three, opportunity. And I love these themes in the Bible. I read something the other day, and I I had to think about it, something that a very, very well-known old-time preacher said. I had to think and think and think about it. He said basically that God's mercy and God's long-suffering is far greater than God's wrath. Look at verse 12. 
Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. See, it's always the heart. And with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. And rend your heart, not your garments. Turn to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repented him of the evil, the evil that we read about at the beginning, verses 1 and 2. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? You know, the book of Joel, as we said, is a prophecy for Israel then, and it's also a prophecy for the last days. It talks about other locusts that are coming to this earth one day. We studied during the summer. But even at that, God is promises in people, his people, that if they would rip their hearts now, just rend their hearts now, they would find that he is a God who is gracious. Now, if you knew what the nation, and we could go through this, don't have time, but if you knew what they were doing at this time when he says, I'm full of mercy and, and I'm gracious and loving kindness and slow to anger, you'd be like, no, no, he has to judge these people. God who's gracious and merciful, of great kindness, that's what you'll find when you rend your heart. Every time. And they had this opportunity. God is giving them this opportunity to rend their hearts. And that's exactly what God will do for you and is doing for you and some of you watching where you are. Christian, you have an opportunity to live for God and serve Him and please Him. The rest of your life, whatever you've done in the past... John R. Rice used to say, whatever your past, your future is spotless. It is with God if you'll rend your heart. You have opportunities. These people had opportunities. What are we doing with them? You know, I remember years ago at the nursing home, many years ago, I had just finished preaching in the nursing home, and, and Brother John Morris showed up with the teenagers. And preaching in the nursing home is probably a lot like preaching in the jail. You have to really use your voice to keep him awake. I remember one time I turned around and I heard a lady snoring and I turned around and she was seated behind me and she had a green bean right here and she was snoring away. I'm like, man, why am I here? What is this all about? But anyway, you have to preach loud, okay? And so I had a wedding that, later that day and my voice was starting to go and I thought, oh man, I better take it easy. I got to do this wedding. But it was time for the, the young people got there with John and it was time for them to sing. And so we did. We sang hymn after hymn. We, have, we had this huge notebook of hymns that we used. And after about the 18th hymn, I told the pianist to skip number 23. And John Morris goes, hey, what? He piped in. He says, Pastor, we missed number 19. Are you washed in the blood? I said, all right. So we sang number 19. And about three hymns later, I tried to do the same thing again. I skipped over number 28 or whatever, and I said, we'll go to the next one. And again, John said, Pastor, no, you skipped number 21. Don't you want to sing Ferris, Lord Jesus? What am I going to say? No, I don't want to sing Ferris, Lord Jesus. Right? <laughs> Had me there. <laughs> but I remember leaving that place, and I thought to myself, man, I love that spirit. I love that spirit of opportunity where it says, hey, we're here, they're here. We can do something. Why not do something, and why not do all of it? You have an opportunity to rend your heart now. What a beautiful thing it would be to rend your heart before the locusts come. Because everybody's going to rend something when the locusts come. Whatever that locust represents for you. You know, 
You've heard me tell, Gail English and I went into Applebee's the day after 9-11. And he stood, now people in our country were shocked and churches were filled. He stood up in Applebee's and said, this is my pastor, Dr. Jim Blaylock. I don't know. And he, he wants to say a word and pray. I'm like, I do. <laughs> I just wanted some, you know, Applebee's Fiesta Lime chicken, but okay. And um, so I stood up and I said a few words and I prayed. And you could hear a pin drop every Buddy in that restaurant bowed their head. You could hear weeping. What were they doing? They were rending their garments. They were in shock. You have the opportunity to rend your heart now. That's beautiful in the sight of God. A sincere and humble heart. Verse 12 again. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. Who knows what great blessings from God will come? That's what it says in verse 14. Who knoweth if he will give, if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? Who knows? If tonight and now you'll rend your heart. Some of you are in some place spiritually where you need to go home. You don't need to come to my office and, and make a public confession. You don't need to like come here in front of everybody. You don't need to like write a letter or whatever some of these books tell people to do. You just need to get before God. You know, rituals or are, are, symbols are good things. Rituals and traditions can be very bad things in a Christian's life. I just automatically come in, automatically sit there, automatically do this. We automatically do it. And if we change it up, uh. There's an old story that I'm told is true by an old preacher who told me it about a church way up north that had an unusual tradition or ritual, if you will. Because every service, the people would start out singing on one side of the auditorium. All these pews were empty. And they would start the service that way, and they would sing these hymns, and then for about three hymns or so, they would worship the Lord on this side. But then after that, they would stand up, and, and while the pianist played, they would switch sides. All of them would just go from here to there. Visitors were rare in this church, way up north in the cold country. But when a visitor did come, they would oftentimes, they were like, you know, wow, this is inexplicable. What's going on? And especially so whenever, if they ever asked members, because the members would always give them different answers. Why do you do this? And some would say that it was a biblical reminder of, as we just said, separating the sheep from the goats, and it would be sober in the church. Which side are you on? I guess one of the members said it was, it was a way of the church staying out of a rut, just mixing it up constantly. And someone said it was a beautiful symbol of the empty pews and all of those in their church that had gone on to glory in this reminder of running the Whatever. They had all these things. It was clearly a ritual that had been around for a for hundred years. And so one day they got a new pastor, and the new pastor obviously was... It was sort of, it was bizarre to him. And he was baffled, but he just went along with it because, you know, he's the new guy. He didn't want to shake anything up. But one day he was out visiting an aged lady in a nursing home, 97 years of age. And he found out she used to, used to be, many, many years ago, a member of that church. And before he left that visit, he said, he said, by the way, do you know how they do this thing, this tradition where they, she goes, they still do that? He said, yeah, what's that about? She said, Reverend, when I was a little girl, 
and we did that, I asked my mother why. And she said, well, our church only had one furnace in those old, old days. And it was a wood-burning furnace. And, and it was on one side of the church. And everybody would come to church freezing, and they would sit over there. And then it would get really hot, and the whole room would get warm, so they all moved over there. <laughs> so that the pastor actually put up part of the service so that everybody would do it together, so it wasn't like all scattered. Eighty years. Now they don't have a furnace anymore. <laughs> they have a regular, you know, HVAC system. You know, traditions, I guarantee you if someone said, I'm not moving. What do you mean you're not moving? That's how we please the Lord here in this place. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you have made the word of God of none effect by what? Who made the word of God of none effect? Who in the world has the power or the ability, that kind of influence, for bad to make the word of God of none effect? Jesus said it. In Mark 7, 13, he said, making the word of God of none effect by your tradition. Traditions can make us rend our garments all the time. And then the word of God has none effect in our hearts. Now, I don't know about you. I'm glad tonight that God wants our heart. I'm glad. I'm glad God wants our humility and our sincerity. You know why? Because anybody can give him that. You can give him that. And I can give him that. And God's people said, Father, we're grateful for your word and this sober prophecy by Joel, Lord, as we ponder it and think about it. And then what you wanted your people to truly do. And we know, Father, that our country was not repentant after 9-11. We know that. Though they were sorry, but they did not rend their hearts. But we also know that sometimes in our own lives, when trials and trouble come, the tears are for ourselves. The traditions and the rituals we go through help us to see why you want us to rend our heart. And our heart belongs to you, and you're worthy of it. And we'll thank you, Lord, for the spiritual growth and the fruit that comes because of it. We'll thank you for that and give you glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.